Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bully. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown, good Lord, show me. gospel reading today comes from the gospel of Luke, the 14th chapter. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he'll say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks. Some of you may know that I, I love to read science fiction. Uh, Larry Niven, a science fiction writer, once wrote these words in a book of his called the Goliath Stone. He said, prudence is the belief that bad things have preventable causes. And he said, Par paranoia is the belief that it's all the same cause. Politics is the belief that you know what the cause is. Now that first statement, you know, prudence is the belief 
that bad things have preventable causes, that, that leads us to develop a healthy ability to plan for things to go wrong. You may be prudent. The prudent person checks every tire on the car before a long trip. And the prudent person fills up with gasoline, fills that car up with gasoline when the tank hits half empty, especially in the winter. The prudent person always considers what might go wrong and has a plan B for almost every situation. You may be a prudent person. The second statement, paranoia is the belief that it's all the same cause, meaning all the bad things have the same cause, leads people to give godlike powers to other people, to believe that everything that goes wrong is caused by a group of evil puppet masters or aliens who hate us. But these theories, you know, you can usually set these aside pretty easily. After all, if you remember Watergate, it had about five people involved, and when they were faced with jail time, the conspiracy quickly came into the light of day. So how likely is it that all the millions of people in the government, all of them, are actually trying to harm individual Americans? The third statement, politics, is the belief that you know what the cause is. Well, almost everyone that I know who has gone into politics or, or who argues politics on Facebook has a sure certain knowledge of the cause and solution to at least one of the great problems that our country faces. You know, politicians and the Facebook would-be politicians are so certain, they're so sure, they're so insistent that they know the causes to inflation and to war and to every social problem that they commit much of their lives to telling people this and if elected, to fighting to solve those problems. You know, there is a place for politicians in his book, The Inferno. The Italian poet Dante Alighieri populated several circles of hell with his politician friends, depending upon what their crimes were. Well, all joking aside, that was a joke, by the way. You can <laughs> smile at that. There is indeed a place for the good politician, the one who's truly humble and working for the best outcomes for the people he or she rep represents. A good politician is humbled by the very fact that he or she has been entrusted with the job. The good, humble politician always remembers that the focus needs to be on doing the best for the people. And in general, the humble, righteous man or woman recognizes that very little of what they've been able to accomplish has been the direct result of their efforts, but instead that God has put them where they are through all those unlikely coincidences that came together, what we look back upon and say, that was God's plan. For this is the essence of being humble, recognizing that God has the power and we do not. The humble knows that we merely bumble along perhaps trying to do right, but it's God who does the heavy lifting. And so the good, humble politician is constantly amazed at the trust that people give him or her, just as the humble man or woman in all walks of life is constantly amazed that God chose them to do the wonderful deeds of the earth. Yet unfortunately, political jobs also attract those who believe that they're smarter and more important and more right than the other people around them. There's a certain arrogance that most develop 
For the people who speak to politicians, if you think about it, they're mostly the people who already agree with them and their positions, but are too smart or too unattractive to become politicians themselves, or who have settled at another job. And as those people tell the politicians how good they are, most politicians begin to believe it until they feel entitled to be treated better than ordinary men or women. It's the same with celebrities. Because everyone they listen to has told them that they are better than ordinary men and women. And so if they had a little arrogance to begin with, it grows. And if they were originally committed to fighting to fix the cause of a problem, a particular problem, once they've indeed fixed that problem, then it's off to the next cause. Because their very success proves to them that they're right and deserving of more power. And you know, much the same thing happens in business and in industry and in academia, in many places in our societies. Success goes to our head. The fact we've been successful in one area and attracted expressions of support and praise lead most of us to believe that we can be successful in other things. When the reality may be that we were just blessed by God to have the success we already have and nothing is guaranteed in the future. The other day, Sandra was watching a romantic comedy. It's about a man who dropped out of MIT to become a DJ. Early in his career, he was invited by a couple of, of his school friends to DJ a party for their startup company. They couldn't pay him, so they just gave him some shares of stock, which everybody at the time said was nearly worthless. Well, after 15 years of becoming a GJ, DJ, the guy sat back and he cashed in that stock. It was from Facebook, and it was now worth over $20 million. But he was wise enough to realize that his fortune had little to do with his talents, and so he remained a very humble guy, and he got the girl in the end, like always happens in the romantic comedies. Most successful people, though, whatever their area of success, they tie their self-worth to their success. And they believe it was all they're doing, their declarations, their decisions, their abilities. And so they fight and they argue to be on top, not recognizing that a follower of Jesus has all of eternity ahead of us. There's no reason to fight. If God wants us to be on top, if we honor God, if we keep in mind that you know, God has been tossing us easy pitches, we will hit home runs. If not, no amount of fighting will accomplish anything good. And so the humble follower of Jesus should recognize that God is the pitcher. God is pitching and our efforts, no matter how good we are, are worthless if God decides to pitch the ball toward us at 300 miles an hour. But you know, if we're in God's will, that pitch will come flying in toward us at 20 miles an hour and we can hit the ball out of the ballpark. Humbleness is when we recognize this. Arrogance thinks, I did it all by myself. Jesus was traveling toward Jerusalem. And one Sabbath day, one Saturday, he went in to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee. Now, as a reminder, the Pharisees were men who carefully studied the law of Moses and spent much time and debate in figuring out what to do in those gray areas between the clear statements of black and white that were in the law. They wanted to become perfect, 
perfect at following the law because these debates you see about what was good and what was bad, what was acceptable, what wasn't acceptable, that's what drove their status in their fellow group of Pharisees. The pickiest men received the highest honors. They held other people up to very stringent standards, but they were also very good at ignoring their own sins. Now, the group descended from the ancient Pharisees. It still survives today, principally in Jerusalem and New York. The news media refers to them as the ultra-Orthodox Jews. But back in the day, they were known, and they're still known today, for their tendency to make firm, definitive judgments about what behaviors are right and what are wrong, and to cut the interpretation of the laws very, very finely. You know, that has passed on to many Christians, though. We find this tendency still in many Christian circles because debates arise as toward questions like whether or not a person may eat food other than the bread and wine of Holy Communion in a church. Some argue you can't and won't have kitchens in their churches. Or there's debates about proper dress for Sunday morning. How many people remember those debates that went on for years over whether a woman could wear slacks or pantsuits or jeans or whether they must always wear dresses? How many inches above the knee can a girl in a church wear shorts or skirts? And it wasn't just the women. There was also the question of facial hair for men, the length of a haircut, full beards and mustaches and sideburns. They've all been discussed as either proper or improper. These are the same sorts of arguments that the Pharisees held at the time of Jesus. Although, you know, many that are mentioned in the Bible were apparently focused upon the idea that you can't work on the Sabbath. So a Pharisee would ask, if he was a proper good Pharisee, he would immediately ask, well, what's work? And then the arguments begin. One Pharisee called down Jesus' disciples because they were walking through a wheat field on the Sabbath and they were plucking the heads of grain off and eating them. Wasn't that harvesting the grain and wasn't harvesting work? Last week in Luke 13, you'll remember a Pharisee claimed that healing on the Sabbath by Jesus constituted work and that healing should therefore only happen on the other six days. Well, Jesus had gone into this den of Pharisees and he noticed that the guests of the Pharisees were picking out the places of honor at the table that evening with the Pharisee. Apparently there was a rigid protocol that most people were using to determine who sat where. Sort of like the protocol used by diplomats to determine which head of state gets the most honor. When you get picky about laws, you see, then you get picky about everything. And those fine skills of debate that they had developed were applied to selecting who was most honorable and worthy of the best seats. It reminded me of the parking lot at the Osaka, Japan headquarters of a Japanese company I once worked for. The parking lot had about a hundred, well it had a hundred numbered spaces and then it had all the rest. My friend who was with me could tell me exactly who had which of the first 20 or 30 spaces. Because the lower the number, the more important you were, and that was really critical. When someone retired or died, everybody moved up in the parking lot. The number, you see, was so very, very important to who they were. 
I once went to a Christmas party with them and watched the guests from Japan meet. You could tell who was more important because the less important person always bowed first, they bowed deeper, and they bowed longer than the more important person. Now these sorts of customs, they develop when you focus upon trying to be perfect and when your place in society, what the other important people think of you becomes more important than what you do for other people. So Jesus said, when someone invites you to a wedding, to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then you'll be humiliated and you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves, Jesus said, will be humbled. And all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Exalting oneself means lifting one another up, lifting oneself up. Luke goes on and he says this story that Jesus told is a parable. That means there's a deeper meaning here than just taking seats at a wedding feast. Jesus is telling us something profound about the way God runs the universe and rewards people at the end of time. Consider this. How much of what we fight for is for the greatest honor? In our modern society, we rarely use the word honor, but instead we use the word status quite a bit. So what do we do in a fight for status? Are we the worker or the assistant manager, the manager or the store manager? Do we buy a fancy car or pickup to show everybody what we can afford? Do we buy a big house even though we have a small family? Do we spend money on landscaping? Do we buy the latest iPhone or do we get a $1,500 handbag? There's three if you, need to, if you need to buy it a little cheaper. Those are under $1,500. I remember when I was in graduate school, there was a speaker named John Malloy who came to WVU. He'd written a book called Dress for Success. He consulted for IBM and done studies, lots of studies. Him and his group found that among other, many other things, a salesman who wore a black overcoat sat in the lobbies of customers much longer than salesmen who wore beige overcoats. The men who wore the beige overcoats got to see their clients quicker and thus they were able to make more sales every day. But why? Well, after extensive interviews, they discovered that the men who wore the beige overcoats were seen as more important and successful than the men with the black overcoats. Why? Well, they asked the salesman, why do you wear beige or why do you wear black? And what they discovered was that the beige overcoats had to be cleaned a lot more, and therefore they cost more to wear, and that's why many of them selected black overcoats. The receptionist really didn't understand this. They just deeply did understand that the men who wore the beige overcoats, that was a clue to who was important and who wasn't important. So John Malloy advised IBM and anyone who listened to him or read his book to wear beige overcoats. For you know, status leads to sales and money, and those are the most important values of 20th and 21st century America, right? We have to show ourselves and others that we're worth more, that we're more important than those around us. We have to fight for the best seats in life, the best position. But what would Jesus 
have us do rather than fight for position. He tells us in the next section of our reading, he says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind and you'll be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You know, when we watch television, we see the dinner parties that Hollywood has. People are invited either because they're relatives, and you know you have to invite relatives, or they're invited because of how important the person is. The rich businessman's invited, the magazine editor, the politicians, they're all invited. The judges and the lawyers and the doctors, they're invited. People are invited because they can do something public for the host. The trashman isn't invited. The checkout girl at Walmart isn't invited. And the gardener can eat in the kitchen with the cook. Take Jesus' command to invite the people who need the food rather than the people who can do something for us. Or more extended, his command is actually a command to be a generous person, a friend of those in need, someone who sees all people as worth something simply because God created them. We're to see people for who they are, fellow children of God, rather than see people just for what they can do for us. The writer of the letter to Hebrews takes this to the next level. He says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Remember, Jesus says that when you hold a banquet, Invite the people who need the food. Now there's a way to do this properly and a way not to do this. I've seen churches that invite the poor in for a community dinner and then stand on one side of a serving line, carefully dipping out a set portion of food to each person who comes through. And when I've asked why they won't let the people, the guests, serve themselves, they often say at first, we want to serve them. But after some talk, someone usually fesses up well, it's because if we let them serve themselves, they'll fill their trays to overflowing. Yet the servers will fill their own trays. There's an inherent trust problem here on the part of the servers. They only want to be partly generous. They want to make sure everyone remembers that there's two classes of people here. There's the servers and there's the served, and the servers have the higher status. They set the rules. But at a very large church, in Ohio that I once visited, 5,400 people, there were no servers. A handful of people kept putting food on the buffet line, but everyone was allowed to serve themselves as they waited for their food pantry, for their clothes closet, for their other welfare issues that the church organized. They went through the buffet line and they served themselves. And that church was growing, growing, growing like all get out because the guests recognized that the church really wanted to be generous. They really were generous. In fact, the leaders of that church said, we won't call our visitors clients. Instead, we call them our neighbors. So quietly help your neighbors in need, even to the point of making anonymous gifts. 
If your funds are limited, make a big difference to one or two families rather than almost no difference to hundreds of families. Visit those who are lonely because they can't help others. Have you ever thought about that? A lot of people are lonely because they can't help others. At least that's what people think. You can have neighbors with friends. I'm sorry, you have neighbors with children. And this is the time of the year when a new coat for winter can make a difference in their lives. And don't stop with just the financial gifts or the physical gifts. Give the gift of a listening ear, a bit of godly wisdom, a prayer together. You're so rich in what you understand about God. Make an eternal difference. When we get Angel Tree gift cards, you know, we often look shocked at the request for a particular brand of tennis shoes or a particular brand of sweater that the kids have written. These children are not stupid. They know that the union card that gets them liked by the cool kids are the expensive brands of clothing. They want status too because status is about the only thing that makes high school bearable for many children. For a pair of shoes may help keep feet warm, but you know a pair of cool shoes can change a life. Become friends, help children reach their dreams, connect people with Jesus. But why do we focus so much on status, on position, on wealth? Ultimately, and this is the hard part, it's because we really don't believe that God and Jesus will take care of us. We feel the need to fight for status because we don't really believe that we're beloved of the creator of the universe. We feel the need to focus on position because we don't really believe that we are princes and princesses of God's kingdom. We need to fight and claw and worry about wealth because we don't really believe that God will provide us enough to be wildly generous. We don't really believe that we'll live eternally. And instead, we think that an extra $100,000 is what's needed to keep us from dying homeless, starving, cold on a winter's night from some easily cured disease. It's our lack of faith our lack of faith in the promises of God that drives us to seek out the best seats at the feast and also to be humiliated when we aren't given them. But one day, there will be a wedding feast of the Lamb when Jesus returns to celebrate with his church and marry his bride who is the church. And at that feast, he will set the seating arrangements and we'll be surprised for the so many quiet, humble men and women, people you really never looked at will have the best seats. The loud and the angry and the winners of arguments, they'll have lower seats and many who are given great honor today by millions of people will not even be invited. If you truly want the best seats at the Feast of the Lamb, do what Jesus asked today and tomorrow instead of following the world's customs. The writer of Hebrews says a bit more by telling us to remember that when we speak of God, when we do good and share with others, our sacrifice is not for them, but it's for our own relationship with God. The writer says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. How much do you talk about Jesus and God to other people. 
And he says, do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Jesus is telling us that God will repay us at the resurrection of the righteous. And so all these issues of status and arrogance and humility will come down right once again to just our perspective. Is today really that important? Is it so important that people today recognize us for being the smart, sharp people with all the answers? Or do we have the faith in God and Jesus to relax today, letting others have their limelight, letting them claim to be right, and instead trusting that God and Jesus love us dearly? Do we trust that the love of God and Jesus is enough for us today and forever? Or must we fight and argue and win today when there are thousands and millions of years ahead of us? So come forward to Jesus and let him set you free. He gives us permission to stop fighting for the best seats. He asks for a different competition to follow him closely, to learn about his commands and teachings, to become the nicest, gentlest, pleasant, most generous people in the world and rescue people from the cold, dark waters of despair and anger. Perhaps this might be the day you come forward to pray for another or a dozen other people to know the love of Christ. Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Boley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia. 26104 or you can text the word give to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the give tab this will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give thank you and god bless you in your life